God, we just thank you, Lord, for your sovereignty. And God, I, I just agree with, with the prayers here, Lord, that we would we would be united and Lord, that we would also see uh, you ultimately making decisions for our country and for our world. Lord, we want to see your kingdom come. And so we, we cry out to you, Lord, to do your will in, in, in all that's happening. And, and Lord, we we may not understand that uh, always, but God, I pray that we would trust you regardless. Lord, that that's what builds our faith. We would remember is that we trust in you and that we don't need to know, um, Lord, why it is uh, things are allowed to happen the way that they do, but Lord, that you are still in control, that you are still sovereign. And so God, we thank you for uh, the opportunity this morning to submit ourselves to your word, God, which is holy and true. Lord, we just uh, ask that your spirit would teach this to us. Lord, I pray that, that as was prayed, you would not allow me to interject anything from my own opinion or my own side of things. Lord, that everything that is said would be led by your spirit and would be um, exactly what we need to hear. So speak this to us, Lord. Teach us this morning. We cannot wait, Lord, to see all that you're going to do for your namesake. And we want to be a part of that. So train us up in this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 this morning. We are just flying through Daniel. I know it may not exactly seem that way, but it feels to me like we're flying through Daniel. Um, So Daniel chapter 4, as you go there, um, we'll really close out uh, in the next couple of studies in this chapter the the story on Nebuchadnezzar. Um, After Daniel chapter 4 is concluded, Nebuchadnezzar will exit our story. And and so here we have the final chapter that focuses on um, not just his reign and the season that he ruled over Babylon, but um, we're going to get a real personal look at Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter. Um, We're going to see a lot of things about him that reveal not only parts of his his heart and his character that we've seen thus far in the book, but we're going to see what God does with this man who has been defined by his pride, has been defined by his arrogance and his, um, his trust in himself and in his own ability. And so going forward, this is a good place to begin with, I believe, um, by way of introduction to look at Daniel chapter 4. The following has been said, Having built on the fragile cornerstones of human wisdom, pride, and conditional love, things may look good for a while, but this weak foundation will collapse, whether by storm or the erosion of time. Um, you give it enough time, you give it enough pride, you give it enough of the wrong types of mix of ingredients, um, human wisdom and conditional, not unconditional, but conditional love. Things may look good for a little while, but after a while, our lives start to deteriorate because we've used the wrong materials to build on this foundation that was faulty. And so Jesus told us to start in the right place. He told us to build our house on a rock. Build the house on a rock, and you will be steadfast and solid. And he tells us um, how we can know if we're building on the rock or not. Matthew chapter 7, you'll remember this, verse 24. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine, notice the next part, and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Notice that the wise man who built his house on the rock did not stop at the hearing or the comprehending, but the doing. You have to be a doer of those things in order to be someone who is classified as having built their house on the rock. And our foundation is the strength of our lives. And if the foundation is the strength of our lives, the strength of the believer then is obedience and dependence upon the Lord. 
obedience and dependence upon the Lord, which is very contrary to what we see shown in the world. Obedience to the word of God and dependence on his strength are the earmarks of believers. Obedience to what his word says and reliance upon his strength. Now, I don't know if we like to recognize this very often, but we should at this moment. That means we are weak and he is strong, yes? That means that we will not look like the hero. God will look like the hero. It means that I will not be seen for how strong I am. I will be seen for how weak I am and how strong God is in me, right? And we know this because we're taught this throughout Scripture, but it's funny how oftentimes we try to present ourselves for the glory of our reputation as being strong, wise, all-knowing, you know, worth listening to. And Paul encourages the church not to rely on our own strength, but to view ourselves honestly as Jesus has brought light into our hearts and as he has cleansed us from our sins. Second Corinthians 4, 7 says, Now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may, not, may be from God and not from us. It's interesting because... I've walked through some ancient cities in Israel and other places, and and something you'll notice is um, if you're walking through a place that's, say, 3rd, 4th century, and you're looking at some of the ruins, there's a lot of clay uh, matter on the ground. There's a lot of uh, pottery and those types of things. I have yet to find a complete jar. I haven't walked around like, hey, look, a pitcher, you know, and just, you know, hey, preserved for all these years. It doesn't really happen. Why? Clay's fragile, Right. We get this. Everyone's like, just tell us why. It's clay is fragile. Okay. Clay is very fragile. If you drop it, it shatters. It cracks. It breaks, especially ancient clay. And so as you think about these types of things, Paul is being very specific. Here is he's talking to the church in the first century when he says, you have this treasure. It's not yours. It's the Lord. It's the filling of his spirit. It's his salvation. He says, you have this treasure, but it's in clay jars. What is the clay jar in this picture? Us, me, Right now, for those of us who are getting older, the clay jar picture is becoming more and more visible. Right? You're like, I think I physically have cracks coming into my face. You know, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but since COVID, when you wear masks, have you looked at your eyes, like isolated from the rest of your face? I took a picture. I was in an airport in August, and I took a picture. I was going to send it to my wife, and I deleted it immediately. Because I didn't realize how like old I look with when I smile and there's wrinkles all around me. I was like, this is awful. At least when I'm, I don't know what I'm looking at when I look at pictures with my face revealed, but I'm not looking at my eyes. You know, when it's just the eyes, I look like I'm 90. You know, I was like, what, where did all these cracks come from? You guys, we recognize that our physical bodies are falling apart. We are fragile. And, and I would take that even further and say we're fragile in more ways than we'd like to admit. We're not just talking physically fragile. And all the youth are like, I don't feel fragile at all. <laughs> you will. You totally will. But, but here's the point. Recognize this now. Recognize that fragility now because it's to be celebrated if we want to honor God. Our fragile weakness is to be celebrated because we recognize that it reveals the light within. It, when I have cracks, when I struggle, when I'm seen as weak, the light of God can shine through that, and he receives the glory. Amen? We want him to receive the glory. And so if I look strong and capable and awesome all the time, I'm, first of all, not being honest with you, but second of all, I'm not letting the Lord shine through my life. I'm not letting him reveal his glory through me. And we're so prone to viewing ourselves as strong, built to last, chiseled, you know? Like, I don't know any guy that's like, I would really like to be like 30 pounds fatter than I am right now, and then I'd just be perfect. I don't know any guys that are like, dude, I got to get these abs in shape. It's almost summer, and I'm going to take my shirt off, and I can't let them see how many burritos I ate in the winter out of depression. 
Now think about this. We try to present ourselves, depression burritos, it's a thing. It, we try to present ourselves in a way that looks on the outside altogether. Like we have all our things together. But we're really just fragile clay jars that break really easily. And this is to show that the true power in us is God's and not ours. It's not in our ability. And we know these things, but this pertains to Nebuchadnezzar. This pertains to the king of Babylon. Because our public statement, the public statement of our lives, is that God would be glorified and that people would see his grace through our brokenness. Through our inability, they would see his salvation. And what's awesome is that God, in his grace, is so faithful to reveal our shortcomings, not only to us, but to others, so that we humble ourselves before him and so that he can receive the glory. And that's exactly what's going to happen in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Nebuchadnezzar and his pride, which are synonymous with each other, have reached the breaking point here in chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar has reached the point of no return. There have been sins in Nebuchadnezzar's life that God has temporarily tolerated. And you know what I'm talking about because God sometimes temporarily tolerates sin in our lives as well. This is a giant red flag. That time ends. That comes to an end. And that's a good thing. And it shouldn't scare us. It should cause us to confess now and be changed now. Don't think that you're getting away with something just because God hasn't revealed it to the whole world yet. What God's going to do to Nebuchadnezzar is reveal to the whole world how broken he is, how messed up he is. The king's going to do something in this chapter that God will no longer tolerate. He's going to reveal his pride to another level, yet another level, And we thought that he had reached all the levels possible in the first three chapters. But pride is going to come to the surface and God's not going to tolerate it. And pride, understand this church before we begin, it lies about who we really are. Pride lies about who we are and that's fragile clay jars. And through pride we proclaim that we're powerful, that we're wise on our own, that we don't need any help, that we understand better than everyone else around us. That's pride. That's not humility. And it can't be something that defines us. And so Nebuchadnezzar himself writes the prologue to this chapter. He writes the prologue. This is the introduction. And we'll talk about why that's important in just a minute. But let's read the prologue as we begin in Daniel chapter 4. We'll read the first three verses and dig in bit by bit. King Nebuchadnezzar, it says in verse 1, To those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth, may your prosperity increase. I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High God has done for me. How great are his miracles and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now we can see clearly, uh, based on further reading of this chapter, that this prologue is written in hindsight. This isn't the condition of Nebuchadnezzar as we start the storyline following these verses. Rather, it's the conclusion he comes to afterwards. It's the conclusion he comes to after all the things that happened to him. And we'll see this as we've studied the entire chapter through by next week's time. But it's important to point out here in the prologue, Nebuchadnezzar is giving honor to God for the most humiliating season of his life and perhaps of the ancient world. The ancient world. The reason I say that is because there's lots of things that we would look at and go, that's humiliating, a defeat or, you know, a a failure of some kind. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be reduced to an animal. Literally, he's going to be reduced to an animal-like state for years 
This is horrible. I mean, it's, it's more defacing. It's more humiliating than anything I, I think I've seen an ancient ruler who is really prideful go through. And he, in this passage, is thanking God and honoring God for the most humiliating season of his life. When was the last time you had that kind of perspective? Where you looked at your life and you looked at a season of your life, you said, this is the, you know, to, to use the, the phrase of our time, this is the suckiest season of my life, Right? I don't know about you guys. A lot of people have been talking about 2020 this way. I hope that one of my friends is very incorrect when he's like, dude, 2020 is just a warm-up. I'm like, please stop. Please stop. I don't need that right now. You're supposed to love me enough to care for me, and that's not caring for me at all. But like, here's the thing. A lot of us are looking at our current situation saying, this is the worst, or this is the worst situation ever. I don't know how Nebuchadnezzar felt in the moment, but in hindsight, he is looking at this and saying, this was good. Because God is good and God is to be glorified. And I want us to seek for this kind of perspective in the moment. Look for that perspective and look for that idea when you're in something that you're like, this is awful. The most humiliating seasons of our life can be the greatest seasons of growth. The hardest seasons of our life can be the most strengthening thing for us. And don't miss that when you're in the moment. Don't kick against it when you're in the struggle. Embrace it because you put your hope in God, which is beyond. It's beyond the situation you're in. It's beyond the life that you're living. He is outside of that, and he rules over it. And so Nebuchadnezzar, in the hindsight view, he wants the whole earth to know what God has done for him. Did you notice this? If you've read the whole chapter, you wouldn't be like, this isn't something that God did for Nebuchadnezzar. It looks more like something he did to Nebuchadnezzar. You ever feel like God's doing two things, things to you instead of for you, right? Like he's, he's afflicting something upon you rather than doing it for your good. You're like, how could this possibly be good? No? Yes? Okay, sometimes. You guys, I feel this way often. God's doing this to me, not for me. Nebuchadnezzar recognizes this is happening for his good. This is what God has done for me. He's thanking God for an incredibly humiliating and painful season of life. Now, I want us to stop for a second and think about the context. This is the last thing in the world you would expect to hear from Nebuchadnezzar. You would not expect him in his position to be saying this to you. This would be shocking. This would be odd. And If one commentator was correct about this, most likely this was written to the entire region and sent out as like an an autobiography, autobiographical, is that the the proper, does that work, autobiographical, is that good? My English majors are nodding. So it's like an autobiographical document that was sent out to the kingdom, to his kingdom, for people to read and understand this entire chapter. And so if he is sending that out to people, this is a man who is known for building a 90-foot gold statue. This is a man who's known for throwing people into a fiery furnace. Not only, do you really think he didn't tell people, I'm the head of gold in that dream I had? Did you hear about that dream? Yeah, head of gold, that's me. This is the guy who's so self-promoting, he cannot be disagreed with. And he's writing to them, I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High God has done for me. How great are whose? His miracles. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. This is all about the Lord. This is all to glorify God from the least likely source in this entire country. It would be very shocking. 
I think that that prologue is intended to have us on the edge of our seats. As you read an introduction like that to the material that we're going to read over the next couple of weeks, it's intended to get the, the reader like, what in the world happened to him? Imagine knowing Nebuchadnezzar, knowing what he was defined as. Do you realize that God wants to do things in your life that are so opposite of our natural fleshly tendencies that people will stop and take notice? That people will stop and take notice of God, not you, of God. He wants to gain glory from our lives as we submit to him. And so, are you on the edge of your seats? Everyone looks pretty relaxed this morning. You don't really have to, it's fine. I don't know if these seats can take it. They're fragile when the youth are around. It's true. (laughs) Two broken chairs last Wednesday, BJ. What happened? (laughs) It's not your fault. If I was here, I'd have broken it myself. I would have been broken. We all know me well enough for that. All right, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, now he's going to give us the body of what's happening. Was at ease in my house and flourishing my palace. Translated really quickly, it was a time of peace and prosperity. He was not at war. He was not fighting abroad. Things were good. Verse five, I had a dream and it frightened me. While on my bed, the images and visions in my mind alarmed me. So I issued a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon to me in order that they might make the dream's interpretation known to me. When the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners came in, I told them the dream, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Very similar situation, different outcomes and different factors, but a similar situation in general as in chapter 2. Do you remember back in chapter 2? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He invites his magicians and all of these guys that he just listed, the, the mediums and the Chaldeans, the diviners, they come in and they're to give him not only the interpretation, but what the dream was. He says, tell me what I dreamed and then interpret it for me in chapter two. Well, here you'll notice he didn't ask them to tell him what the dream was. He asked them to give him the interpretation. A little bit softer side of Nebuchadnezzar we see here in chapter four. But what's interesting is how similar the situation is. And rather than this dream revealing the future of the Babylonian kingdom, we know some factors about it that are important. The last dream was about the Babylonian kingdom and the kingdoms thereafter, including all the way to the kingdom of Christ, right? And how that's going to play out. Now, what's interesting about this dream is the one, as we're about to see, this dream is very personal. This dream is not necessarily about kingdoms. This dream is about Nebuchadnezzar personally about his relationship with God and about where he's at. And so similar to chapter two, the magicians, the mediums, the Chaldeans and the diviners can't interpret the dream. They can't tell him what it is, even knowing it this time. They can't interpret it for him. And there's not even a threat of death upon them. But in chapter two, we see a difference in that they had more on at stake When it came to, you know, if you don't tell me the dream, I'll rip you limb from limb. I'll make your house as an ash heap. And if you can tell me, you'll be rewarded. Here he just asked them and they can't tell him what this dream actually means. And so it moves forward. Verse eight. Finally, Daniel named Belshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him came before me and I told him the dream. Belshazzar, head of the magicians, because I know that you have the spirit of the holy gods and that no mystery puzzles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I saw and its interpretation. In the visions of my mind, he begins the dream. As I was lying in bed, I saw this. There was a tree in the middle of the earth, and it was very tall. The tree grew large and strong. Its top reached to the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit was abundant, and on it was food for all. Wild animals found shelter under it. The birds of the sky lived in its branches. 
and every creature was fed from it. Now notice this with me. In verse 8, how many names for Daniel are given? Two. Why did he give the two names for Daniel? What does that reveal to us? It's interesting because you think about this, in the interactions with Nebuchadnezzar, it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3, correct? And they were referred to by their Babylonian names. Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael were their Hebrew-given names. And so we're, we're using just their Babylonian names. Well, here he refers to Daniel and then clarifies Belshazzar. It could mean nothing, but I think that when you see this and you put it together with the other factors in this chapter, that you see a closeness between the king of Babylon and Daniel. They've had interactions before. They've had instances before, and he says here, this is Daniel who is head of the magicians. He is the head of this, this class. And so there's a special recognition here, and I believe a relational aspect between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. And the reason why I point that out is we see Daniel do this throughout the book up to this point. We see Daniel have a relationship with the head of the eunuchs, remember? When he gets permission in chapter 1 to only eat vegetables and drink the water, Right? He's like, don't, we don't want to eat from the king's table. We want to do this. He has relationship and they let him do that. Chapter two, when they're under threat of death, he talks to Arioch, the commander of the guard. And he says, why are you going to kill everyone? Hold on a second. And he basically gets this deal where he can take time and then go reveal the, the dream to the king. There is a relational aspect to that as well. Daniel has a way about him of being soft-spoken and tender enough with these people and asking permission and being respectful that they trust him. They trust him and he gets close to them. We see it happening with Nebuchadnezzar. We'll see it in, in a couple different places. And it's revealed how much the king respects Daniel. In verse 8 as well, as he says, a spirit of the holy gods is in him. He's saying he has a lot of respect for Daniel. He stands apart from the other men, mostly because he's able to do things they're not able to do via his strengthening and ability through the Lord. Notice this is not his amazing skill set on his own. It's the way the Lord empowers him to do it. We'll see another picture, I believe, of this closeness with Nebuchadnezzar in verse 19. When Daniel reveals the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, he uses very formal language when he says, may this, the interpretation of this dream basically be served out on the king's enemies rather than the king. That's a very formal way of saying this is a bad thing. This isn't going to be good. But it's also a way for him to reveal how troubled he was over it because there was relationship between himself and the king. I believe that there was a connection between these two and that there was a trust level there. Verse 9 says this, even though Daniel is the head of the, magi the magicians, he still wasn't summoned with the others. Did you notice that? That Daniel came into the story separate from the other wise men of the land for the second time when it comes to dream interpretation between chapters 2 and 4. Now what's interesting about this to me is it gives us a picture of something that's important. Okay. This gives us a picture of something that's very important. Daniel is separate from the other advisors. This is a picture of maintaining difference and not necessarily distance. There's a difference of what Daniel does, but he's still there. He's still there. He's still accessible. He's still the head of the magicians, but there's some kind of a separation. There's no mixing him up with the other guys, so to speak. Does that make sense? You think about chapter three. Was there any mixing up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the crowd? No, why not? Three men standing, the rest were bowing. 
right? That's easy to catch, you know. Where are the men that are standing? Well, they're the tall ones right there. Everyone else is down on the ground worshiping the 90-foot statue, right? It's, it's pretty apparent when there's three people standing in that context. Daniel stands apart even in private. Even in private gatherings between the king and his advisors, Daniel stands apart from them. There's a difference in him, but not a distance. He's present, but different. Are you catching my drift? We are not distanced from the world. We are in this world. We are functioning as Christ's people, as his church in this world, but we are not to be at distance. We are to be different. We're to stand apart because of who we serve, because of who empowers us. And if we look like the world, we've conformed to it. There needs to be a difference, but not a distance. We've been given this task, church, as salt and light to maintain the difference of our newly created life in Jesus, but not to distance ourselves from the people who need to experience the Lord's grace through us. Are people experiencing the Lord's grace through you, through your life? I have to be really honest. There are people in this room that I see it through. I see others experiencing the Lord's grace through them. And I just pray that the Lord empowers you to keep doing it that he empowers you to keep doing what you're doing because I think some of you are really getting worn out and tired. And I want to encourage you that the Lord is using you where you are at this time, in this season. Allow him to strengthen you for that task. He's going to continue to glorify himself through you. Don't distance yourself. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Galatians 6, 9, in due season, you'll reap if you don't give up. Don't quit. Keep doing what the Lord's put in front of you. Now, the dream that the king has is interesting. It's a really fascinating dream because we're talking about this tree, a ginormous tree. This isn't a normal tree. If it's reaching to the sky or to the heavens, you would say, you're talking about something that's abnormally big, okay? It's a very strong, tall, large tree. And notice this in the text. It's defined as thus. Its top reached the sky and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Now, if you think about this, what else in the Old Testament was built to reach the sky? Oh, yeah. Bible students. Genesis 11, right? The Tower of Babel. Really quickly, just 11.4. You know this well. You guys nailed that. That was awesome. I heard it from like all over the room. They said, verse 4 of Genesis 11, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. This monument of man's pride and arrogance, the Tower of Babel, very similar phrasing is used of this thing that's built up to the sky. You've taken all the resources, you've built yourself up into this great big thing. What you don't realize is you're not the one that's been doing it. You're not the one that's been giving you this power. You're not the one that's been giving you this kind of ability. What was the Tower of Babel built for? There's a lot of different things. There's different aspects to it. You can look at, say, it was built so that they could reach to the heavens. They wanted access to God their own way, right? They wanted access to God their own way. It was built so that they wouldn't be scattered, so they could unify and do something. And think about this. What can't be accessed by floodwaters? A really tall tower. What had happened just a few chapters before? The flood. Why does mankind build towers in arrogance and pride to prevent themselves from God's discipline and judgment? And we actually think it's going to work. That's the funny part. God's like, nope, you're all going to speak something different now. And he scatters them, right? You're all going to talk in different languages. Don't you wish you were there? Really quick. Don't you wish you were there when God did that? 
And your friend looked at you like, you're like, I said, hand me that brick. What, what in the world just happened? You're like, dude, the guy just went Pentecostal on me. All I wanted to know is, can we like build this together? And now he's, oh, Mike's ripping on Pentecostal. That's okay. There's a little Pentecostal in me. That's okay. You guys, when we see a comparison to the Tower of Babel, this something that reaches to the sky, right? Something that reaches to the sky. You and I, as Bible students, look at it and go, uh-oh. That's not good, right? Whenever it's something that, that represents a person, you're like, yeah, we don't want to be that. We don't want something that's reaching up to the sky and pressing into God's territory, right? Because we understand the Tower of Babel was something that represented pride and arrogance. But what will Nebuchadnezzar hear? Think about this. What did he hear when it came to the idol in chapter 2? Or not the idol, the image that he saw in his, in his dream. Well, in chapter 3, he's got this 90-foot gold statue what do you think he heard or how he started interpret- interpreting that? He took the grandest parts of it, made it about himself, and wanted other people to worship it. We never do that. Right? We never do that. We never make things all about us and have the world and the universe just surround us all the time. We've never done that before, have we? None of your kids act like the world revolves around them. That's what you're saying. You're like, oh, my kids do that all the time. They think the whole world revolves around them. Yeah, where do you think they learned it? It's true. They learned it from us. They learned it because they watched us function that way. They learned it from me. I am the king of this castle, and I deserve potato chips and my feet up at 530, right? Think about this. We <laughs> Think about it, though. We, this is who we are. You guys, what does Nebuchadnezzar hear when he hears this tree? He's asking for interpretation, but the reason I'm saying this is I'm giving you a foreshadow of what's going to happen one year later. One year later, Nebuchadnezzar will have completely forgotten the warnings of this dream that are coming, and he will only remember the fact that he is the big tall tree, right? That's what pride does to us. It desensitizes us over time to the factors that are actually in play, to the truth. There's another side to this dream, but as we progress, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar disregarding warning and clarity given by Daniel, and instead will receive the parts that he likes. He's going to receive the parts that sound good and push away the stuff that's truthful that he doesn't like. Now, when we read the Bible, when we read God's word, when we read scripture, do we do this? I know lots of people that like to talk about grace. I know lots of people like to talk about forgiveness and how God's all these different things. And those are great parts. Those are great parts of the Bible. Are there other parts that matter just as much? Absolutely. Because just as much as we talk about grace, we need to talk about God's holiness. And just as much as we talk about love, we need to talk about judgment. And just as much as we talk about his righteousness, we need to talk about his mercy. I flipped it on you there, see? I'm not stacking up like good and bad. These are all parts of the character of God. And so when we read the scriptures, we read it in its entirety so we understand it in its entirety. We don't get to pick pick out the parts that we like and leave the stuff that we don't like aside. God has spoken to us in one steady voice and all aspects of his character are to be listened to. It's all the more reason for us to study and receive the whole counsel of God whether we like it or not. Did you hear me? This is for me. We need to listen to every aspect of what God has to say, whether I like it or not. It's not up to me. It's up to what he said. It's submission to his will. 
And we're so prone to thinking and rationalizing just like the king here, taking what we don't like and discarding, or taking what we like and discarding what we don't. Well, Nebuchadnezzar continues with the second part of the dream. It says this in verse 13. He continues, the rest of the dream, as I was lying in my bed, I also saw in the visions of my mind a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called out loudly, cut down the tree and chop off its branches. Oh, this doesn't sound good. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him, did everyone catch that? Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share the plants of the earth with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a human and let him be given the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. This word is by decree of the watchers and the decision is by command from the holy ones. This is the, that the living will know. This is so, excuse me. This is so that the living will know that the most high is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants and sets the lowliest of people over them. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation because none of the wise men of my kingdom can make the interpretation known to me, but you can because you have a spirit of the holy gods. So Daniel's task lay before him now to interpret this dream. And that's next week. Sorry. We don't get there today. You're like, whew, it's hot in here. We're not getting there today. You guys, Daniel's going to interpret this dream, but here we need to notice some things about this. The command from God is that the tree is cut down and unable to provide resources and shelter for anything. Did you notice verse 15? After he says that, he says, but leave the stump with its roots in the ground. Leave the stump with its roots in the ground. That should catch our eye. He continues and he says, with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field, and then it switches. I mean, verse 15 is loaded. It switches context from talking about this tree to saying, let him be drenched. Let him. Now it's talking about a person. Like, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about a tree. No, no, no. Let him be drenched with the dew from the sky and share the plants of the earth with the animals. Even though this tree will be cut down, the roots will remain in the ground. If you watched a tree get cut down and you didn't know anything about trees, but you watched it get cut down and there's just a stump there, what would you assume about the tree? If you didn't know anything about it, you just watched it get cut down. Well, that tree's a goner, right? Now think about this. How many people... Have we seen God allow to get to this place in their lives where there's hardly anything left? Where they are reduced to almost zero? Have you ever watched someone get that low? I have a handful of times. And I have looked at those people in the past and I have seriously wondered in my mind, is there any hope for them? Is there any hope for them? Will they ever come back from this? Will they ever be able to... You know, they're just, they're done. That's it. There's no reaching them. Have you ever felt that way over a loved one? Over someone in your life, you're like, there is no reaching them. I've tried every way I can. That's it. You know, they're just, they're, they're going to go to hell willingly and they don't care to be saved. They don't care about the Lord. They just, they're rejecting everything. Have you lost hope before? The 
this is going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar, this scenario, and it's going to last for seven years. He's going to act like an animal for seven years, literally. Not like he was a wild man. Like he's going to act like an animal. He's going to live with the beasts of the field. Do you think that people lost hope for him? Do you think people thought he was too far gone? That he was a waste, that he was never coming back, that he's crazy, and, and we have to find another leader of some kind because he's never coming back. The roots will remain in the ground. This teaches us something vital, Christian. We can't lose hope. We can't lose hope no matter how bad it looks because our God is able to work beneath the surface. Our God is able to work in ways that we don't see. And so we never lose hope. We continue to pray. We continue to seek after opportunities because our God is working in ways that we cannot comprehend. It's all below the surface. I don't get to see what's going on underneath. The roots are in the ground. He's going to give him another chance even when it seems that he's used his last. Never forget examples in Scripture of this. These are important. We'll go through these quickly. Never forget people in Scripture, and this is not exhaustive by any means, people who were redeemed back from their sin or redeemed back from their circumstances, even when it seemed like they had crossed the line and could never come back. Do you remember Samson? Samson is the perfect example of how we should not be. You know, if you're like, I need an example in Scripture of like how to live my life. Well, Samson's a great one of how not to. This is how you shouldn't live your life. Samson's hair grew back. God didn't have to do that. God gave him another chance. Think about this. Manasseh, the most wicked king in Jewish history, sacrificed his own children to false idols. He had his eyes gouged out and he was put into captivity and he cried out to God and scripture says God forgave him. You think he did the unpardonable sin? Not in God's book. Not according to God's economy. You see, there was roots in the ground. It looked like a train wreck. It looked like a chopped off tree. But there was still something going on under the surface. Peter was restored from public denial. Three times he denied Jesus. Jesus three times confirms him and brings him back. Paul was had his crazy traffic stop on the way to Damascus. Right? You know, it's, it's, you think it's bad when a cop pulls you over. How about if the Lord pulls you over and blinds you? That's bad. You know, you're like, officer, I can't afford this $90 ticket. And Paul's like, Lord, I can't afford to be blind. Am I going to be blind forever? You guys, we, we forget about all these examples of God working in these amazing ways when it seemed like these people had no hope, when it seemed like there was no hope for them and they were the worst of the worst. We serve a God that works beneath the surface. More is happening than what you see, and we should never lose faith in God who can work in ways that are unseen. We don't know the outcome. I don't know the outcome for everyone's life. But we know what God is capable of. I don't know the outcome, but I know what he is capable of. And am I putting my hope in that? Or am I putting my hope in things that I see? Put your trust in the God who is capable of saving. Put your hope and your trust in the one who can save people even when it seems impossible. The tree is Nebuchadnezzar himself. He himself will be cut down and yet he will not die. He'll be less than a shadow of what he once was as he lives like an animal for seven years, dew growing on him, eating grass. Job 14.7 says, there's hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it will sprout again, and its shoots will not die. 
It's fascinating because in that passage, something really interesting going on. After that, Job's like, but there's no hope for me, right? Because <laughs> Job's really down. Job's having a really rough week. You know, like he, he's had a really bad time. You're like, I'm having a really rough week. I just don't see any hope for me. There's hope for that person, but not for me. Okay, so learn something from Job. That's a matter of perspective, not truth. That's a matter of where you are, not what is actually real and true. There is hope for Job. There is hope for Nebuchadnezzar. And the tree is the picture of that. There is hope for this man. If it's cut down, it will sprout again. Its shoots will not die. And then we get this band of iron and bronze. Bronze, not bronze. (laughs) That N is so important. (laughs) Boy, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? If that's the band, I'm sorry. Okay, anyway, so you get this band of iron and bronze, of bronze around it. What is that picture? <laughs> Kelly, let me recover. There's, <laughs> there's bronze, iron and bronze. I'm on it. I'm ready. Okay, iron and bronze wrapped around it. What is that, what is that a picture of? God's protection. Even though he's in this compromised state, God is going to protect him there as he grazes on grass like a cow. Literally, I'm not calling him a cow. I'm saying he would do that. (laughs) You guys, we're going to get into the literal way that this happened next week, but what we're seeing clearly communicated here, this is personal. This is personal, and God is dealing with Nebuchadnezzar on a personal level. Isn't it crazy that God would go to these extremes to reach Nebuchadnezzar? I've brought that up all throughout the first few chapters of this book. It's incredible to me that God would continue to reach out to someone like Nebuchadnezzar, and it gives me so much hope that he can reach people that I'm praying over. Seven years he'll be in this state. Verse 17 says this dream is coming from God. It's going to happen. He tells us the reason why it's going to happen. Note this clearly in verse 17. This is so that the living will know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. Who are the living? If you're thinking broad, you're correct. Are we living? Oh my gosh, maybe you're not. <laughs> we are the living, right? That includes Nebuchadnezzar, but the lesson goes farther than that. It isn't just to teach him something. It's to teach the living, all people, that the Most High God is ruler over what kind of kingdoms? Human. Human kingdoms, it says. Human kingdoms. Oh, my goodness. So, you guys, the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. Why is that important? Because we get disheartened when we watch the news. Because we look at our world and we feel like it's out of control. Because we look at the election, we don't know what's going to happen. Because we look at the different things that are going on in our communities and we don't know what's going to happen. We look at these things and we get all freaked out because we start thinking that we have to do something about this. i got to do something. What? Something. That scares me. If it doesn't involve the bathroom, it really scares me. Like, if you need to do something, you'd like, tell me what it is before you do it, please. You guys, think about this. We are under a sovereign God. He is the ruler over human kingdoms. We have a responsibility to live as his kingdom people in this time, but never forget that he is the king of kings. Amen? He is the king of kings. He's the one who's in charge. I am not. He is the one that knows everything. I do not. And I have to submit to his authority, and he gives these kingdoms to anyone he wants and sets the lowliest of people over them. (laughs) 
Now, I don't want you to define for me what the lowliest of people look like, and I certainly don't want names. But have you thought about that statement? What is it that we see as greatness? And what is it that God often does? You guys, there's multiple directions for this, and we have to wrap this up, but, but there's multiple directions for this. I want you to think about this for a second. Who became the king of Israel according to God's desire? Was it Eliab, the oldest of Jesse's sons who looked the part? Or was it David? You can answer. It's okay. Small room. It's David. That's good. So was David the uh, most impressive of Jesse's sons? No. Not only was he the youngest, he didn't even call him when Samuel showed up. Right? David's still out in the fields. All the other boys are there. And he's like, well, David, I mean, there's no way it's going to be David. So let's just, you know, deal with the group we have. So who did God decide? He says that he looks on the heart. God looks on the heart, right? God's the one that sets these things up. So oftentimes, this is one one branch that we can look at in this thought process. We oftentimes look for people to look the part of a leader. But how often is God actually using and le- using other people to lead that we would least expect? That we would least expect. Are you trying to make yourself great or are you trying to be humble like Jesus? You realize if Jesus wanted to be the big man when he was incarnate, when he was here on earth, that he could have been. If Jesus wanted to assert his power, he could have. Did he? No. He made himself into the form of a servant and washed stinky feet and died on a Roman cross. You want to be like Jesus? Do you want to be like the God of the Bible? Do you want to understand the Bible completely? Then become like Jesus. Have the heart of Jesus. Have the humility of Jesus. Have the sacrifice of Jesus. Wash people's feet. Think more about them than you think about your own safety. If we could go through a whole study, we're not going to do it. We're out of time. But we could go through a whole study about what it means to look like Jesus. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're not supposed to be making something of ourselves. We're not supposed to be lifting ourselves up like trees that reach to the heavens. These people get dealt with by God. We don't want anything to do with that. If we recognize what Jesus has done for us, we can't get low enough. I can't get humble enough. I can't get dirty enough to be underneath so that Jesus is honored in my life because I recognize that I'm a fragile jar of clay that needs to have the light of God shine through me. We have to recognize these things. Pride cannot be named amongst us. And we want the living to know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms because of how we live. Because we live that kingdom lifestyle now. Church, don't despair over the leaders of our world. They're not in charge. It may look like it. It may seem like it, but they're not. God is a sovereign. He is in charge. And he's the one we serve. Our God is the most high ruler over human kingdoms. I don't know if Nebuchadnezzar was aware that this dream was touching on this being him. Daniel's about to tell him. We'll talk about that next week. But I don't know if he was aware at this moment that this was speaking to him personally. What I do know is that God speaks to us through his word. And he speaks to us in prayer. And I don't want to misunderstand what he's saying as Nebuchadnezzar mixes up in his dreams after they've been interpreted. After it's been told to him, he doesn't know what it's saying. He forgets it over time because his pride just swallows it up. 
Do you realize that your pride can swallow up some of those nutrients that God is giving you from his word and leave you stuff that makes you more prideful? That you can actually build a case for your pride, for your arrogance, and for your, your situation just based off of what you're reading if all the truth is filtered out of it? It can actually make us more prideful. How many of you have known a prideful Christian before? I have. That's how it happens. It's not that they weren't reading their Bible. It's that they saw the things that they liked and they received them and they saw the stuff that convicted them and they pushed it away. They didn't apply that conviction to their lives as well. May that not be us, church. Let's hold each other accountable for this. Let's hold each other accountable for this. Let's do this together. Let's keep each other humble. Not walking and go, stupid. That's not how we do it, right? Dude, are you serving someone? Who are you taking care of? Do you need help? Can I help you? Can you, you know, like, are we in each other's lives? Are we blessing each other through practical means? Are we feeding each other on the word? Are we praying for one another when we're not around each other? It won't always be visible. Sometimes God will use us to work beneath the surface. Maybe it's going to be through prayer. Maybe it's going to be through blessing someone where no one else knows he did it. And it should stay that way. Nebuchadnezzar, we know from the prologue, comes to understand who God truly is. But for us who know him, we know that rather than destroying the tree to the stump, we submit ourselves to God so that he can do something that's very important in the life of the believers. And we'll close with this. We have to let him prune us. Right? We look at the tree and the stump and we're like, okay, this is a picture of someone who doesn't know the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar. But when we look at the application of the tree picture in the Gospels, we look at John 15. And we should know this passage well. I'm sure we do. John 15, 1 through 2 says, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. I like that. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You know exactly what I'm talking about if you work with trees, Robbie. Right? Pruning is for health. Now make the spiritual connection and make it a reality in our lives. What is he saying? If we are connected to the vine, we're what? Saved. If we're connected to the vine, if our branch is connected to the vine, we're saved. We are in Christ, right? If we don't produce fruit, there's this picture of him removing that. So that's a dead branch. It's not producing. But when we produce, if we're producing fruit, we're connected to the vine. He's flowing. What is God faithful to do in that situation? Clip, clip, clip. Why? Why do we prune? Produce more fruit, right? So what does God have to take out of our lives to help us produce more fruit? All of those things. I'd say it apply. It, it connects really well to Hebrews chapter 12 where it says, let us lay aside the weight and the sin that clings to us. I put those things out there because the writer of Hebrews separates weight and sinful things. There's stuff that's sinful that needs to go that's clinging to us, but there's also weight that we carry which we shouldn't. There's things that we take on that we shouldn't because it's actually inhibiting our growth. It's inhibiting that fruit production in our lives. And every single one of us, this, okay, this is not one of those exercises like, now turn to your neighbor and tell them what they're carrying that they shouldn't. That's not what we're going to do. Absolutely not. This is for us to look at our lives. Now, you should have people that can do that that are close to you. You should have friends. And, you know, for us husbands, we have wives that can point out, you know, the things that we need to get rid of, right? And, and vice versa. That's important. We need those kind of relationships. But I want us to look at ourselves. 
I want us to look inside at our own lives and understand, Lord, what is it that you're trying to prune that I'm... No, I need that. You don't understand. It's so pretty. This little nub right here, it's my favorite one. I want to keep it. God's like, it's got to go. It's got to go. It's totally preventing you from producing fruit. What's the thing in your life that needs to go? Maybe it's a device. Maybe it's an entertainment habit. <laughs> I would like to say it's a project so I don't have to do it. But Sarah says those are essential. Like, what, what is it that's going... <laughs> word, right? But what, what, what is the... <laughs> no, I know you're always like, stop. No, here, here's the thing. You guys, I'm not telling you what it is. I'm saying that I have to look at my life and you need to look at yours and say, what is it that's prohibiting me from producing fruit? Not from getting something done, producing spiritual fruit. You guys, this is a joyful exercise. This isn't like, oh, I stink. I've been doing the wrong thing. It's not that at all. It's for you to look at your life and go, has God been trying to take this away? And I keep moving the branch. And I'm not letting him do it. My wife cried when I clipped our elderberry bush the first time. She bawled because it looks so bare. And it looks so sad. It's terrible. It's a horrible thing. I mean, I, I went to town. I had a good time. I had a good time. It was so overgrown. Do you know what happened the next year? It exploded. It got bigger. It shot straight up, branched out. We had berries everywhere, and we were in there making elderberry sauce that she makes us drink when it's, you know, the time of year we could get sick. You guys, <laughs> all the guys are like, good job, sweetie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to make my husband do it too. That's right. The pastor said it. Think about this, you guys. If you, <laughs> if you, <laughs> if you prune things, it produces more fruit. It's good. It's healthy for it. But sometimes, not to use, my, not to throw the two chair lady under the bus, but let me do it one more. Y- you understand that's how we react a lot of times. This is so sad. This is so horrible. I'm just, what's going to be left of me now? Health. Better production. It'll take time. But it will produce more fruit. Are you guys catching it? Hopefully I haven't beaten that horse to death. Like, you, is that okay? You, you understand what I'm saying? What do we need to do? Let's just look inside. Let's see what we need to do in our own lives to, re- to let God remove these things. Let the Lord do it. He'll reveal it. Like, how will I know what I need to get rid of? Spend some time in your Bible. You'll see it. Apply it to your life. Not like, oh, yeah, oh, boy, Roger sure needs to do that. And, boy, Harold, if he would just do that. That's not what it's for. Apply it to yourself. Take the beam out of your own eye before you help your neighbor with the splinter that's in his, Matthew 7. It's important. Let's deal with this internally. Then we're going to help each other. Sound good? All right, we'll tackle chapter, the rest of chapter four next week. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for speaking to us from it. God, I know that sometimes I spaz out, but Lord, I pray that you would just help us to hold on to the things that matter. And Lord, that no matter what, we would hear these things in love from you to ourselves because that's how you speak them. God, you speak these words from your scriptures to us in love because you want to see us grow. Because you gave us this example of Nebuchadnezzar for a, a, a wake-up call. For us to look at this, what happens when we let pride rule us? But Jesus, then we look at the vine and the branches, and we remember how well you have loved us. We remember how you saved us from our sin. So why wouldn't we let God, the Father, come and prune us? Lord, the only reason we wouldn't let him do it is pride. And so, Lord, if there's a hesitancy... God, just help us to see how ridiculous that is. 
The only things that the Father clips away are things we need to be free of that we could do without. Lord, I, help, I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to see whether we are holding on to weight that we should not carry or allowing sin to cling to us that we're not confessing and being free of. Thank you for liberating us from these things. I thank you for the love that you have for this group of people. And I thank you, Lord, for putting us together. Sometimes we have to talk about hard things, but Lord, I pray that these people know how much I love them. Lord, I see how much they love me. And God, I pray that we would be in this together as a family, Jesus, until you come. Bless our time as we worship.